at uh, this time, I want to invite you to have a word of prayer with me. And let's seek God together before we begin our worship service. And uh, so please kneel if you can. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for your blessings that you continually pour out upon us. Uh, Even though we may have some uh, rough road in front of us, and we do, we see the fulfillment of prophecy, we know what's coming, and so Lord we pray for grace, we pray for courage, we pray for knowledge, that our knowledge may be increased. Above all, Lord, we pray that we may love the truth more than our very life. Get us to that point, Lord, that we can stand for the truth and uh, the truth of Jesus, and that we can reach people before it's too late. Father, I lift up before you those on our prayer lists. I lift up our youth, our children. The devil is really going after the families. He does this in a number of different ways, through pastors, through teachers, through parents, and then through just the the world around, our culture. I pray that angels will be sent to surround our children and protect them and guide them. Uh, We want them to be in the kingdom, and we want to be in the kingdom. So please help us, Lord, to be examples to them, righteous examples, and forgive us where we failed. I lift up before you those on our prayer list again that are, are in ill health, battling disease, uh, those who have lost loved ones. I pray, Lord, that you soften their hearts and bring peace of mind to them. And may we aid them in some way to comfort them. If I be with those also who are uh, traveling to houses of worship, and that are worshiping you today around the world on this Sabbath day. Bless us as your people, that we may come into unity and be in one accord. Father, I pray, as we claim the blood of Jesus, that you forgive us our sins. And please be with me now as I speak on a very important principle that you have in your word. May my words be the truth, not opinion. Uh, May hearts be softened to hear the truth and accept the truth and study each one of us to show ourselves approved to God. Bless us this day, Lord, for we sure need your blessings. And we love you, and we love Jesus, and we thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord, and answering them in the name of Jesus, who is worthy to be praised. Amen. I've entitled this uh, particular message, In One Accord. It's actually, um, you know, friends, when the Lord... in gives me uh, certain things to speak about. Um, sometimes when I, by the time I get done with my notes, it's so long that it becomes a two-part or three-part or four-part. And, and I don't plan these things out that way. That's just the way they work out. And this is going to be a, a two-part uh, message. It is very important. Of course, we come together to learn more about Jesus, and we've been uh, doing that in the the Bible teachings about who and what the church is. We've spent the last year or so studying that theme of who and what the church is. And friends, I've earnestly uh, prayed that we have been drawn closer to our God and the truth about this very important subject. You know, Because having a correct understanding of this will help us to discern whether we are members of the church of Christ 
or members of the Church of Antichrist. And I've met very few people that openly want to be a member of the Church of Antichrist, though I have met some, um, and there are some, sad to say. If we are to be the people that Jesus wants us to be, if we are to be members and remain members in the Church of Christ, we must give ourselves wholeheartedly to Him first and foremost. Do you agree with that? Any changes that we make in how we live, uh, into what organization we belong to, will avail us nothing, friends, if we do not have the Holy Spirit alive within our hearts and minds. Now our scripture reading for today was Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. And in Acts 1.14 it says, These all continued... That's the disciples, those who are followers of Jesus, says they these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. They were in one accord. And in the weeks ahead, we'll be studying aspects of church organization. And I want to put this scripture into the forefront of your mind and ask you to meditate upon it for the next several weeks as we go through what the Bible says tells us about gospel order. These followers continued together with one accord in prayer and supplication. You need to meditate on that. Now, the subject for this time, that I have for this time, it can be a strong one, but it has to be understood. It's another one <laughs> for our time, friends. It has to be understood if, if we are to come into complete unity as a people, to be in one accord as a people. For some, it's going to be tough medicine. It's going to be tough medicine to take. And I understand that. For it was tough for me to take until the Lord opened my eyes to see. And what I mean by that, friends, is there's a change that comes over us when we stop drinking wine from the bar of Babylon. We actually begin to sober up. And we begin to see things in the right light. And I praise God for helping me, and I think thousands of others, to see this principle, to see this truth. You know, friends, I gave my heart to Jesus the first part of 1985. And my heartfelt prayer to Him, in that prayer, I requested of Him to just be shown the truth. I wanted to know the truth. No matter how difficult that truth may be for me, I wanted to know it so that I could live it the best that I could. I could make a good decision, I hope, based upon what I've been shown. And I'll tell you that Jesus has never failed in answering that prayer that I prayed so long ago. Even when it was hard for me to take, He shared it with me for I needed it. And that hasn't changed. And I'll tell you this, I praise God that He knows us so well that truth is given to us at the right time in our walk <laughs> so that we aren't over, overwhelmed uh, by too much too soon and our faith damaged so profoundly that we lose hope. Jesus knows what we need just when we need it. You know, He said in John sixteen twelve, He said to the disciples, He said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Friends, we're getting to a time where it's all going to be shown to us. 
and we need it to be shown to us to prepare us for this final battle that we find in Revelation chapters 13 on. I trust the Lord and His decisions about my life as I walk with Him. He knows each of us so much better than we know ourselves. And He is kind. He's charitable to us as we endeavor to walk with Him by faith. I hope that's your experience. You know, sometimes, at least I'll speak for myself, and I think many of you may have had this experience, but sometimes we think we are okay in our walk with the Lord, and bam! Something happens that unsettles us, and we seem to react in a way that we begin to doubt the Lord. That's a part of that human nature that we're always battling against. That God puts that enmity, see, within us against that natural heart. And I believe, friends, when we get to the point where we trust Jesus in all things, then we will trust Him in good times and bad times, knowing that He always has our best interest at heart. And this is the truth found in the Bible about the Creator. And I hope, my friends, that you want to know the truth. I hope that you want to know the truth no matter how difficult it may be to hear. I hope that you want to hear it. I learned a long time ago that Jesus is the truth. It's what the Bible teaches. And I want to be with Jesus. And if you want to be with Jesus, then you want the truth too. Do you want to be with Jesus? Do you want the truth? You know, in our world today, all around us, the truth is evil spoken of. It's as if nobody really cares what the truth is. No one wants to get down to the truth. No one wants to see the evidence. They're just hyped up on emotion and they want to go by their emotions. It's a sad time we live in, friends. We're living in the last days. And there are many things that we may believe at this point in time is the truth when actuality, in actuality, it really isn't. I mean, do you know what I mean? We are going to see things and learn things about ourselves and our personal beliefs that are wrong. That's a fact, friends. And it would be a great shame if we were to walk so long together with the Lord to give it up when we are shown our errors. You understand my meaning? Speaking for myself, I want to know the truth about myself so that I'll be right with God. Now, change can be very hard. And it may take some time. And, and God is very patient with us. But time's running out for this world. So let us, as a people, be more than willing to be proven wrong according to the Word of God. Amen? And let me tell you this, let me encourage you, to be proven wrong by God's Word means that we've been shown the truth and we should rejoice at that. Amen? Now there is an essential Bible principle that is generally unrecognized by Christians today both within and without Babylon. And some who are made aware of this principle, in my experience, refuse to acknowledge it. But I'll tell you whether acknowledged or not, it is there nonetheless. And if you do not recognize it 
in time, you may just partake of the plagues along with all the other unbelievers. Now, I will tell you I did not make this up. I don't do such things. I did not conceive this principle. This principle is at the very core of the great controversy. This principle has everything to do with unity, being of one accord with God and each of His people. This is the principle uh, that can be described in terms such as corporate accountability or corporate responsibility. The fact that God holds you accountable not only for your own individual actions, but also for the actions and behavior of the group or body you choose to belong to or you choose to be a part of. Now, let us understand this in the context of what we've learned concerning who and what the Bible declares the church to be. Remember that there are only two sides in the great controversy, the side of Christ and the side of Antichrist. Two churches, the Church of Christ, the Church of Antichrist. So there may be many organizations. In fact, there are many organizations, but each one will either be in the Church of Christ or the Church of Antichrist. There are many different organizations or denominations that appear to be different compared to each other, but they are all members of the Church of Antichrist. The same may be said of the Church of Christ. There may be many organizations or denominations that may appear different, but they all just might be members of the Church of Christ. Remember what John asked Jesus one time? It's found in Mark chapter 9 and verse 38. Now, beloved, I'm talking about a principle here, okay? Let's not get sidetracked on my statements about different denominations and stuff. I'm talking about a principle, okay? In Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 40, John says, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part, or for us. That is a principle. And I'll tell you, friends, we need to be careful not to be presumptuous in our thinking that we are the chosen of God and fall into that same satanic trap that the Jews and every fallen organization has done up to our time. And let me tell you something. Those organizations fell, not individually, but corporately. Though it does start with the individual. And we must understand that when we join ourselves by covenant with an organization, we are held accountable for what that organization does. We cannot say to God, friends, let me be clear, we cannot say to God that it was the leader's fault and blame others. You know, Adam did that. You recall? Adam did that by saying it was Eve's fault that he had sinned. Eve said it was the serpent's fault. Essentially, what they were saying was, it was God's fault.
It is the spirit of Antichrist, beloved, that lays the fault of personal and corporate sins on others. Satan blamed God for the division in heaven that he had started. And Adam and Eve partook of his spirit in passing blame. And let me... Let me tell you that when you pass the blame of your sins onto others, you do not adhere to the principle of corporate accountability. For you see, it's everyone else, not me, so I can't be held accountable. It's not me. I'm righteous, Lord, but, but there are bad apples in the church. It's them. Or there's bad leaders. I know there's bad leaders, but you know, this is the apple of his eye. Let's step back and take a look. What does the Bible teach? I hope you realize that there will be millions of people who will do the same in blaming the people of God for all the calamities that befall the world. But who will partake of the plagues because of their sin and support of spiritual Babylon? It will be those who are blaming others. And when you blame someone else, essentially you're blaming God. Corporate accountability. You know, parents are held accountable for their children, aren't they? Heads of households are held accountable for what goes on in their homes. Ministers are held accountable for what goes on in their flock, etc. Beloved, we must recognize this principle. Live by this principle. Teach it to others or we too will be held accountable to God for their actions, which in actuality would be our actions too. And before we can be successful in organizing as a people to finish the work that God has entrusted to us, we must understand this principle or we may be calling others out of one confusion and into another. Different heads of the same beast, so to speak. We'll call others from disunity into disunity. And this we cannot do. So we must come into one accord as a people and then call others into the fellowship of believers. And I would hope, and this is my hope and prayer, for those who have been witness to my preaching and teaching, I hope that you can testify that I don't speak outside of the Scriptures. Whatever I am impressed by God to present will have at the very core of it the Word of God. Nevertheless, I know that there are some areas where I may be wrong. I'm a fallible human, you know, just like you are. I always pray that I may have a teachable spirit and be shown by the Word of God where my error exists. And I believe this is as it should be with all of us, don't you? <laughs> now, this principle is recognized really throughout the Scriptures. And we'll look at many of those examples so that we are clear about it. I want to begin in the book of Genesis. I'm going to be begin, uh, begin with um, chapter 12. This is Abraham. It's an example that we find in the life of Abraham. We see that while Abraham was in Egypt... He asked his wife Sarah to say that she was his sister so that the Egyptian princes would not kill him, you know, because she was a beautiful woman. 
She was fair to look at. And so she caught the eye of other men. Abraham feared for that, feared for his own life. And so he tells Sarah, I want you to say that you are my sister so that they will not try to kill me so that they could have you for their wife. And what was the result of Abraham's deception here? If we go to Genesis chapter 12 and look at verse 17... Excuse me? Chapter 12, verse 17 says, And the Lord plagued Abraham in his house. Doesn't say that, does it? Well, isn't Abraham the one who pushed this deception? It says, And the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house. With great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. That's interesting. It goes on and says, And Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Now, we don't really know how Pharaoh came to the knowledge. Uh, probably he, he pressed Sarah about it. Uh, the idea here is he's being plagued, and it started when. You know, he, he was uh, taking Sarah to be his own wife. In fact, he had already paid you know, the, the dowry to Abraham. And Abraham was held in high esteem because, quote, you know, he was the brother of Sarah. He was part of the family, you see. Part of the household. So Pharaoh's seeking out, why are these plagues... Now, we don't know what the plagues were. It doesn't tell us what they were. But Pharaoh and his house are being plagued. So he's able to trace it back and he's like, well, wait a minute, this, this began at this point so as he begins to search out and figure out what's going on, I'm sure he got to Sarah and said, hey, what, what's the story here? And she probably admitted to him, well, actually, I'm married to Abraham. Somehow he found out that they were married. Because he gets Abraham into the judgment hall where he's at, and he says, what is it that you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why saidst thou, she is my sister? So am I taken her to, to, to be, um, taken her to me to why? Now, therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. He, he even let him have the dowry. Just get out. Now, Abraham had married his half-sister. Now, don't be shocked by that. Sarah was the daughter of Abraham's father, but not of his mother. Okay? So he felt that, hey, it's okay. She, she is my sister. But he's being deceitful, wasn't he? He was using the truth in such a way to deceive 
He was breaking the ninth commandment, friends. He was bearing false witness. But I want you to notice that Pharaoh was held accountable as well as, in, as his entire household for this sin. Plagues fell upon Pharaoh and his house because of the sin of Abraham. Abraham was considered a guest of Egypt, a friend and confederate to the country. He's part of the family. He's going to be, right? Brother-in-law. And what did God do? It was twofold. He actually used the plagues to protect Sarah from Abraham's deceit. For they stirred the Pharaoh to search out the source of, of that displeasure, God's displeasure. And he was teaching a principle here. And God has done this quite often to wake people up to their course. Sometimes we go through some bad things and we may think, hey, my household's being plagued. What is going on? And so God will use such things also to teach us to turn to Him to find out what is going on. Why is this happening? So I can correct it. And the Pharaoh corrected it. There's another example. You go a few more chapters. Genesis chapter 19. Let's go to the account of Lot. You know, Lot's in Sodom. Evil city. You remember, Lot had been blessed by God tremendously. Abraham had been blessed by God. They had flocks. They come into the valley there. You know, and, and Abraham allows Lot to make his choice. They need to split up because uh, the, the hired hands of, of Lot are getting in dispute with the hired hands of Abraham. And Abraham says, look, you choose and you can go your way and I'll go my way. And, and Lot picks the, the valley, flush valley, but, but that valley was on the outskirts of Sodom. And he goes into that valley and he pitches his tents toward Sodom. That was his first mistake. And through time, as he began to be wealthier and wealthier, his wife, you know, and family, they move closer and closer and pretty soon they're in Sodom. And Sodom wasn't uh, the big city of Sodom. This is, you know, counsel of us that we find in the Bible is that God's people need to live in the country, not in the cities. And so, he's in the middle of all this evil. And God sees the evil. He's about to destroy the evil. And here in verse 15, Genesis 19, chapter 19, verse 15, and it says, And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the plagues, in the destruction. What's it say? Lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. The rebellion. And friends, there's a key to the corporate accountability principle. Lot was considered a righteous man. Yet he is in an unrighteous city and the 
the warning here is to get out lest you be consumed in the iniquity of the city, which is going to result in the destruction of the city. The call in Revelation 14 is to come out of Babylon or you'll partake of the plagues. Why will you partake of the plagues? Not because you happen to be in the city. Oh, I was in Babylon by mistake. Because you will be consumed in the iniquity of the city and then be destroyed. You'll be held accountable. And so here, Lot is threatened with death if he does not quickly separate from that corrupt city. Was God favoring Lot because he was Abraham's nephew? No, it wasn't. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, Verse 6, Peter says, "...and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just lot..." That word doesn't mean just singly lot, but just lot. "...vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked." Lot was vexed. Verse 8, For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Lot was in Sodom, but he didn't like it. His heart was torn apart because of all the evil he was a witness to. Day after day after day, their filthy language, their behavior. So even though God acknowledged Lot as just and righteous, if he would have refused to heed the command to separate, all his righteousness would not have saved him from being consumed by the fiery wrath of God's judgments. And friends, the point to be made here is that regardless of our standing with God, if we refuse to obey His command for us to separate from sinful associations, we will be destroyed along with them. We will not be in one accord with God, but with evildoers. God works on principles of righteousness. And though He loves us with an everlasting love, and He does, He will not stay one righteous principle to save anyone. There's no grand exception with God. Friends, God will never change one jot or tittle as Jesus said of the law, he would not change it of his righteousness in order to save anyone. Jesus' death at Calvary proves that to be true. If God could change, it would have, would have been changed. There would have been no death at Calvary. The Jewish nation believed that they were the exception to the principles of God. They were not. Their faith was a false faith. It was that of presumption. They believed that no matter what evil was done among them, they were chosen of God, thus in one accord with God, and He must keep His promises to them as a people. That's what they believed. We are the descendants of Abraham. Many of them could trace their line clear back. 
And I'll tell you, even when the Romans were killing them and destroying the temple, they still believed that God would deliver them. One of the things that they didn't learn, or maybe they had forgotten, was that all of God's promises, all of God's threatenings, are conditional upon obedience to Him. And this is as true today as it was then. I'd say, friends, let's not continue to make the same mistakes that they did. Let's not not go down that same path of presumption. Let us not believe there's some grand exception in our case. Because there isn't. Let's come together in unity with God and each other. Let's strive to be in one accord with God and each other, not discord. Let's go to another example. Find this in Numbers chapter 16. And I'm going to spend some time on this one that will lead into part 2 of uh, this study. Numbers 16. This is the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And maybe many of you uh, are uh, familiar with this. There are a lot of lessons here, and uh, hope that we learn them. We go to number 16 and verse 1. It says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. Now remember that. He's a descendant of Levi. Okay, And Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. Now see, they were sons of Reuben, not Levi. Took men... And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And so you have Korah, along with some of these other men, and 250, as is expressed there, princes of the assembly. These were men who were known. In fact, they may have been chosen to represent their families. They were famous in the congregation. They were known by, by uh, many, many people. Moses knew who they were. Verse 3, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You know, you take too much upon you. Seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them, wherefore then lift ye up yourselves upon the congregation of the Lord. What a very strong accusation. Now, because Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they had so many men behind them, it must have, the accusation must have been true, right? Really? Some people think that. Some people think, well, hey, you know, because you're in a, a little home church, you can't have the truth. This denomination has millions of people and properties and hospitals and schools, they They can't be wrong. 
Is that true? Babylon has good people in it. So Babylon can't be wrong. Can it? So Korah, the leader of this rebellious movement, this discord, we saw that he was a Levite. Said he was the son of Levi. He was actually what? Grandson. Great-grandson. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. Right? He was a Levite. He was actually a cousin of Moses. He was a man, really, of great uh, ability and influence. He influenced all these men. He was charismatic. He was well-liked. He loved people. <laughs> he had compassion for people. I hear that, you know, from from people that uh, tell me about, you know, certain minister here that's teaching error. Well, he loves people and he's so compassionate. Okay. But he's teaching error. But he's so loving and he's so compassionate and everybody likes him and he has 10,000 people that follow him. And Well, Korah, it's kind of the same way. He had people following him. He had people that influenced him or that he influenced. Well, I'm sure he had people that influenced him too. And don't you think this kind of tended to build him up a bit? Very proud. I mean, the accusation shows that to be true. He was a Levite, a cousin to Moses. Great ability and influence. The Korahites encamped, you know, on the south side of the tabernacle near the, near the Reubenites. That's why some of these others, I mean, they were Reubenites, they knew each other. They joined in in this rebellion, this rebellious movement. He had his place in the sanctuary services because he was from the line of Levite. He wasn't a priest. He was uh, the, the, the children of Korah were assigned to the ministry of music and song at the sanctuary services. And Dathan and Abiram, they were princes again of the tribe of Reuben. They claimed for themselves, this is why they were in it, they claimed for themselves as descendants of Jacob's firstborn, which was Reuben, the right of civil leadership in Israel. Reuben was the oldest. Joseph shouldn't have gotten the inheritance. It should have been Reuben. That's always been our tradition. We have the right to be leaders in Israel. But even though Korah was a Levite and served in the tabernacle, he had become dissatisfied, you see, with his position. He wanted to be a priest. And so he, along with those who followed him, had forgotten that the Lord was the head of the body. And it is the Lord that does the calling and the ordaining, not man. And you know, as I was, I was studying this out, I realized that History does indeed repeat itself. 
It does indeed repeat itself. Let me share with you how for just a moment. There's a big to-do that's been going on in, in the professed church for the last several years about ordination, ordination of leaders. And in reading discussions back and forth about this subject of ordination of leaders and discussing ordination of leaders, and specifically women as elders, for example, I've heard this same expression used as Korah used to justify his rebellion. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor Joel? Let's go back to verse 3 here, number 16 of verse 3. And let's read it again. Here's Korah. He comes with all these men. It says, They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing, now notice what he says, all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. What's Korah saying there? He's saying that all the congregation are qualified to be priests. Is this true? Let me ask you, friends. Is everyone in the body of Christ qualified to be ordained as ministers? Are all qualified to be elders? What about apostles? What about prophets? Some in the professed church today have this same spirit, I'll tell you, friends, of Korah, and speak as he did, sad to say. Now, it is a fact that before Moses' time, everyone might offer sacrifices in his own family. Okay? So there was that aspect. Okay? But now this office was confined to just one family. And that one enjoyed all the benefits that came from that privilege. I'm talking about the family of Levi. It's also true, of course, that in a sense, all right, we think about this, in a sense the whole congregation was holy in that the people were chosen by God and separated from the surrounding nations. Okay? Some people misuse uh, what Scripture says about we're, we're all a royal priesthood. But in the context, friends, that's being spoken of as being able to share the gospel message, and we all are able to do that. I want you to be aware and understand that God, in this instance, had now ordained that the theocratic church should exercise its outward priestly function through one family. And that one family had been set apart for that purpose. God chose the line of Levi to serve that function at that time. God also himself has chosen who qualifies to lead a flock and has laid this out very clearly in his word for those who wish to do his will. And we'll get, we'll get more into that as we continue the study into proper organization of the church, gospel order. But I found it to be incredibly interesting and like a repeat of history here. 
the same spirit involved. So we have this rebellion by these men. And they come before Moses and they make these accusations. And of course, when you accuse a follower of Christ, who are you really accusing? Who was it that Adam and Eve were really accusing when Adam said, oh, it was that woman that you gave me? And Eve said, oh, it was the serpent that you created. Who is she? Who is Adam and Eve really accusing? They're accusing God, aren't they? And so when Korah, Dathan, and Byram and these, these men come and accuse Moses and Aaron, who are they really accusing? They're accusing God, aren't they? So we have this rebellion by these men, and what is God's reaction? How does God react to that? Let's go back to number 16. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves. Did he say, Hang in there and maybe you can influence them to righteousness? I hear that quite often. Well, somebody's got to reach him. I'm going to stay in here. Is that what God said to Moses and Aaron? Stay there. Maybe your righteous works will influence these these people. No. Verse 21. Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. So here is a rebellion against those called by the Lord to serve Him as leaders, and the call is to separate from the rebellion. Separate from rebellion. Now, what's interesting is the reaction of Moses and Aaron to God's command. Verse 22, And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? Do you get what they are saying, beloved? Moses and Aaron Righteous leaders in the church, good men of God, are asking God to make an exception in this case because surely the entire church is not responsible for the discord of a few errant leaders. I say, I have to ask you, does this sound familiar to you? Do we not hear the same sentiment repeated at nausea? about the condition of the church today? Oh, there's just a few bad apples and God knows that, so He'll let that slide. Oh, really? You actually think so? Do you really think so? Beloved, I say this with all humility. That kind of thinking is from the devil. Each one of us is held just as responsible as the ones who are the bad apples. 
if we're part of that same congregation, that same organization. Now, I'm not talking about tares. Not talking about tares here. This example of Korah, they weren't tares. They were in open rebellion. Tares, we can't read the heart to discern them from the wheat. But I'm talking about those who are rebelling against the Lord and His organizational principles, just as Korah was. And so here in verse 22, God calls, God's call to Moses, His command to Moses and Aaron was to do what? To separate from the congregation. Thus, by separating from that congregation, they were remaining, they would have remained, they would remain in one accord with God, and then God would consume the discordant. The call to Lot that we looked at just a few moments ago. God sent angels and were calling Lot to separate, right, from that city so he could consume them and destroy them. The destruction of Sodom. Are you starting to see a principle here, friends? I hope you are. It's prevalent throughout the Scriptures. From Genesis, if we start here in Genesis, we're going to end up in the book of Revelation. You're going to see it. Let me share this with you. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3. Page 354. She says, They, this is speaking of, uh, of this instance here, in Numbers 16, she says, They, that's the congregation, also were in alarming danger of being destroyed in their sins. That's the sins of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They, the congregation, that's all the people. That's Israel. So God essentially is saying, okay, Moses, you and Aaron, separate yourselves. I'm going to destroy Israel. We're going to start over. (laughs) So she says, they were also, the congregation also were in an alarming danger of being destroyed in their sins. Again, that's the sins of Korah, Dath, and Byram, the rebellion. By the wrath of God, for they were sharers in the crimes of the men to whom they had given their sympathy. Sympathy, friends. And with whom they associated. Wow. Let that sink in. Let me read it again. They also were in alarming danger of being destroyed in their sins by the wrath of God, for they were sharers in the crimes of the men to whom they had given their sympathy and with whom they had associated. By sympathizing with and associating with these sinful men, God considered the congregation just as guilty as they were and thus subject to being destroyed. Again, I'll remind you. Moses and Aaron knelt before the Lord and prayed. Is the whole congregation guilty because of one man's sin? God said, oh, you're right, Moses. 
You and Aaron stay in there and see if you can influence these men to a right action. God didn't say that. God said, separate yourselves from rebellion. Let's go back to number 16. We'll go down to verse 26. And he, that's Moses, spake unto the congregation. You see, Moses and Aaron heard what God said and they obeyed God. Okay? We see this in verse 26. Moses spake unto the congregation saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest ye be consumed in all their sins. So Moses heard God's command to do what? Separate. <laughs> Friends, it's, it's really a very simple principle. But the devil, he likes to confuse us, doesn't he? So Moses takes God's message. He goes to the congregation. He says, depart. He's telling them, separate from these men. Separate from the tents of these wicked men. He also says something else. He says, and touch nothing of theirs. I'm going to get to that in just a second. He says, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. And this principle hasn't changed today. We are always exhorted to instant and complete separation from those in rebellion. Now, he says, and touch nothing of theirs. I want you to know that all the goods of those rebels were considered um, anathema. You'd be cursed if you touched them. Because they had used all those materials, they devoted that to rebellion, see? So it's not to be touched. And Paul speaks to this same principle. Let's go there. Paul, huh? Exactly. Um, or they're not to like associate with them, attend their meetings. All of it. All of it. All of it. Yeah. Anything that pertained to these people. The material things, the teachings, the associating with them, the fellowship, all of it. Separate. And like I said, if we go to Second Corinthians six, Paul is addressing this same uh, principle. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18. He says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Okay. What fellowship hath what? Righteousness with what? Unrighteousness, Paul says. And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple, who is? Ye are the temple, he says, of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And what does he say? Look at verse 17. He says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. But he says something else too, doesn't he? He says, And touch not the unclean thing. 
So when God says to gives Moses the, the command to separate, it's not just to move away from, it's not like go in and take all their material possessions, <laughs> you know, that separate just from them bodily. No, it's everything about them. It's been devoted to wickedness. God's making a point here. It's to be a complete separation. You may take something of theirs out and it may influence you to do evil too. And Paul's saying this. He's, he's uh, uh, repeating this. The same principle. He says, Come out from among them. Be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. What happens when we do that? No, what happens if we obey? What happens if we separate and we don't touch the unclean thing? And the reason I'm, I'm kind of stressing this, uh, beloved, is because there are many people who separate, but they separate for the wrong reasons, and they bring the unclean things with them. They'll separate for the wrong reasons. You know, they were uh, mishandled. They were treated poorly. So they become bitter and they separate. They don't separate on righteous principles. So they'll separate because, oh, well, because probation is closed on, on that particular church. You don't know that. The Bible doesn't teach that. You're to separate for righteous reasons, for righteous principles. But you're not to take the unclean thing with you. You're not to touch it. And I found that many people bring the unclean things with them when they separate, and you're just, it becomes systemic. You're, you're going into another congregation, and the same thing happens there. Same thing happens there. And, and I've seen many people who've come out of fallen organizations, and after a time, go back in. Not because that fallen organization has become righteous again, but because, well, they changed and they, they've been apologized to, or this has happened, or that's happened, and they go back in. They left for the wrong reasons to begin with. But what happens when we separate, and we touch not the unclean thing? We come out for the right reasons. We don't bring all that wicked baggage. We leave it there. What happens when that we do that? God says, and I will receive you. God says that. I will receive you and will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. That tells us that he's not in that organization or else he would have been not been calling us to separate from it. And so the Lord calls for a complete separation. He doesn't tell anyone to stay within a rebellious organization to try to reach them and turn them from darkness to light. He has other methods of reaching those in darkness. And sometimes you can't. They will be destroyed. Just as here in number 16. Just as Sodom was. And friends, let's heed the word of the Lord. And not make decisions based solely upon our inclinations of what's right, a right course. Or, or especially, let's not have a sentimental affection that causes us to lose sight of doing what's right. And I know it's hard. You see, I'm a first, 
in Adventist lingo, I'm a first-generation Seventh-day Adventist. (laughs) I'm not a fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist. I came out of Babylon. It may be a little bit easier for me to see those same characteristics than somebody who's been raised as a third, fourth, fifth generation. And so, steeped in some tradition there. And tradition can be hard to separate from. But the command is to separate. Let me remind you of this statement as I close up part one here. We're out of time. It's found in the Signs of the Times article, November 8, 1899. Notice the year, 1899. She says, Paul writes to the Romans, If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Notice her statement. It is a strong statement. And please consider it carefully. She says, but there is a point beyond which it is impossible to maintain union and harmony without the sacrifice of principle. Separation then becomes an absolute duty. Like I said, this is strong language. This is strong language. Contemplate those words. There is a point beyond which it is impossible to maintain union and harmony without the sacrifice of principle. Lot, you need to get out of Sodom. Why? Because it is impossible for you to maintain union and harmony while there. You are going to sacrifice principle. Moses and Aaron separate from that congregation. Why? Because you can't maintain union and harmony with rebellion. You're going to sacrifice principle, righteous principles. It is the duty then for you to separate. I want to encourage you, friends, to trust God. Trust God. With all things, trust His Word, obey His Word, because God knows what is the best course of action in every situation. Every situation. And let's remember that when He tells us to separate, and we do not, we will be held accountable for that decision and the results that are going to be poured out upon that organization. hope you take these words and study it out for yourselves, friends. And we'll continue this uh, the next time we get together. We'll finish up Numbers uh, 16 and we'll get on to a few more examples. Uh, let's have a, a word of prayer now. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, again we thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the truth that is found in your word. Father, we don't want to be, we don't want to be found guilty by association. We want to be in the truth, to live the truth. We want to be a member of the Church of Christ. Father, teach us these principles. Help us to understand them rightly and to heed your call to separate from rebellion, to separate from associations 
that will lead us to sacrifice righteous principles. Help us to have the courage to stand for this truth, even even if our members of our family don't understand and don't agree. Help us to follow Jesus no matter what. Forgive us when maybe, Lord, we've dilly-dallied around. We've skirted around. We've used our own inclinations and come up with excuses to remain where we should not remain. Forgive us for that and help us to set our course right again. We thank you so much again for the Sabbath, for the blessings of today. Please continue to be with us and keep us safe and send angels to walk with us as we we go about our day today. And may what we, we think and say and do, especially today, bring glory to thy name, for thou art worthy to be praised. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.